Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. I'm also managing partner of the Strategic Valuation and Advisory Services Practice, which brings clarity to the most important strategic decisions that business owners and executives face by presenting them with factual evidence for such decisions. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic is, should I pursue non-dilutive funding? And probably if I were more detail-oriented, I'd say, should I pursue non-dilutive funding for startups? Because that's really what this is talking about. Um, and I wasn't able to find data for the entire non-dilutive funding market, but just the revenue-based financing market, which I'm sure we'll touch upon today, is expected to reach $42 billion globally by 2027, according to Allied Market Research. And, and revenue-based funding is, is fairly novel. I've actually had a couple of clients that, that have used it. And, and uh, there are now, uh, in effect, uh, providers of capital that will lend you money based on your expected revenue coming in. So in, in, a, in a way, it's, it's kind of like purchase order financing, but instead of, of doing that with equipment, it's generally made available to software as a service company. Um, it, and it turns out it's, it's a not very visible market, but it is a much larger one that I think most people realize. And, you know, I've never met a startup yet that isn't interested about interested in the question of how to fund their, their business. So um, we leave no stone unturned here on the Decision Vision podcast. And I hope that you'll agree that this is a, a useful uh, topic. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to have somebody on that that knows a lot about this topic and really a lot about the venture, the venture game as a whole. Um, uh, she's just going to be a fabulous guest and a fabulous interview today. And Lauren Cascio is founder of Gulp Data a company providing non-dilutive funding using data assets as collateral. She also recently founded Akind, a seed fund based uh, backing healthcare in Africa. Prior to her recent move into funding, she co-founded Arbartis Health, a growth stage health uh, health tech company, where she ran product data and development for six years. She is a proven angel investor and an active tech ecosystem builder, successfully advising and mentoring dozens of companies through go-to-market data monetization and fundraising, and joining us as our first guest from Puerto Rico, Lauren Casquio. Welcome to the Decision Vision Podcast. Thanks, Mike. I'm so excited to be here and to represent Puerto Rico. How fun! There are a ton of entrepreneurs here. So, um, you know, for a lot of our listeners, I think their ears are perking up because uh, I don't know. I don't know that they necessarily understand when we say non-dilutive funding, even what what that is. So, can you take us through? How do you define to somebody what non-dilutive funding is and how does that compare to funding that actually is dilutive? Yeah, so this is, by the way, this is one of my absolute favorite topics to cover with founders. Um, This is something that a lot of founders have to learn about the hard way, both equity financing and non-dilutive funding. Um, And it's never easy or fun to learn about things the hard way, specifically when it's something you've built. Uh, I have so many questions, uh, you know, about funding and fundraising and what it was like. And I now have experience on both sides of the table. So simply put, non-dilutive funding is any capital that does not require you to give up equity or ownership. Um, and, And that compares with dilutive funding, where dilutive funding requires you to give up equity or ownership in exchange for capital. Um, 
dilutive funding also early on can require you to give up things like board seats and preferred equity, uh, anti-dilution provisions, warrants, uh, you know, all, all of the things that early stage founders typically think that they need to give up uh, in, in the beginning of building their business. And there are some caveats to non-dilutive funding as well, specifically around venture debt. Uh, we'll get into the different types. But um, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. It's either giving up equity or not. So, you know, whether you're new to the game or you just sort of watch it play out on, on, on Shark Tank, which is kind of the WWE version of venture capital, um, you know, we, don't, we typically hear about venture funding. The venture capitalists are the ones that get all the pub. They're the ones that, that everybody knows, the Peter Thiels of the world and, and so forth. Um, why are some investors now trying to change the model, especially since that model's worked very well, at least for investors? Why are some investors in, interested in, in changing the model and providing capital that goes outside the raise capital, sell stock kind of model? Yeah. So I don't think that this is a new tool that VCs or investors are using, um, but essentially it can do a few things. And I have some examples. So it can definitely lower the risk for VCs by passing on risk to future investors. So for example, a company that has raised, you know, a bunch of money, maybe $10 million, they are going to be eligible for I don't know, pretty <laughs> what's considered friendly venture debt, um, venture debt terms where they'll be paying interest rates of like 10, 12, 15%. Uh, and they can probably find financing for about 25 to 50% of that capital. That's, that's usually later stage companies that are raising more money. And in turn, the investors like this because they're essentially passing on that risk to future investors. Uh, the life cycle of venture debt is that people raise it and then future rounds pay it off. Um, there are some other non-dilutive, and we haven't gone into the types of non-dilutive funding yet, which I know we will, but there are other types of non-dilutive funding uh, that can be complementary to VC as well. So in some cases, uh, VCs have a limitation on the amount of follow-on they can you know, provide into a company, or they have a capped amount um, of their total fund that they can make into a single investment. So if they want to preserve their position as the company goes on to raise later rounds and they just don't have the spare capital or can't make those investments, non-dilutive funding can help them preserve um, their position in those companies. It's also, so yeah, I think uh, with market conditions like we saw last year, we saw insane markups in 2021. We saw valuations go through the roof. Seeds, average seed stage rounds were, I mean, what, like over 4 million, I think, in the US. And 2022 is not producing the same valuations. And what that means is that investors are locked into these companies and these companies don't have a choice because a lot of them can't take a down round because of anti-dilution or whatever other terms they have with their current investors. And so they're looking to bridge and they're looking to preserve their own position in the company, but also the position of their current investors. And so when we see stagnant valuations, non-dilutive capital can be great. Um, so yeah, You said something that's really interesting. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I told you we might go off script and we are in question sure. two, and that's okay. But you said something I think is really intriguing, and I'm not. it may have been intentional, and that is that um, non-dilutive funding might be used to create effectively a synthetic anti-dilution position, right? You know, anti-dilution, at least the way I see it, is considered a pretty onerous, almost punitive term. You don't see it that often. Um, uh, thank God, because valuing anti-dilution is a nightmare. But um, but on the other hand, you could achieve some anti-dilution by offering by offering non-dilutive financing, and sort of have your cake and eat it too. Exactly, exactly. I, I didn't yeah. even thought of it. <laughs> it takes yeah, it really takes risk um, out of the game for investors. So so. Yeah. Um, so one type of non-dilutive funding that I, I don't want to talk a lot about today because I have a separate 
interview scheduled is is grants, right? Um, but but there are a number of other forms of non dilutive funding that are available. So you know, to the extent that you can, can you can you talk a little bit about what other forms of non dilutive funding are are out there? Yeah. All right. So I won't cover grants, even though I love grants. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I will definitely dial in for that podcast. Um, all right. So there are a ton of non-dilutive funding um, mechanisms, tools. I think the one that most founders think of when they think of non-dilutive funding is venture debt. And venture debt can be very predatory and it can really kill an early stage company because the interest rates are typically very high because the risk is very high for an early stage company. And there are covenants and rights typically in those agreements. Um, And so venture debt is one type that's like um, Silicon Valley Bank, Mercury, a few others that offer the services, a ton of independent, um, you know, Lend it, lenders that offer these services, but that is the tip. That is like the typical what what founders think of. It's either venture debt or VC, but it's not true. So you also have accelerators that offer non dilutive funding. I personally have been part of an accelerator here in Puerto Rico uh, some years ago called Parallel Eighteen that pro- that provided just non dilutive cash, a cash grant for joining their accelerator. Uh, you have crowdfunding which is like Kickstarter, Indiegogo. And this is essentially people buying your future product. So anytime that people are buying a future part of the company, that's non-dilutive funding. They are funding you to get started. You have revenue-based financing, uh, which you mentioned earlier. And revenue-based financing is one of my favorite types of non-dilutive financing for early stage companies that have MRR or ARR multiples. And those are companies like Pipe and Founders Path, um, Uncapped. They, they, I think most of those companies do like revenue-based financing and factoring, which is for invoices. Um, and it's great if you have the metrics uh, to qualify for revenue-based financing. And, and MRR and ARR for those of us who aren't necessarily in that world, that's that stands basically for your your sustainable revenue or sustainable growing revenue. Yes. Right. Sorry Monthly run that. rate or annual run rate. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> so right. yeah, it's based on a recurring. Uh, well, I'm probably using acronyms, but I'm like, what? Don't you know those acronyms? No. So it's yeah, based on recurring revenue. So predictable revenue, and then they take a percentage of. So they'll fr- you know front you the money up front maybe 12 months of your, you know, of your monthly recurring revenue, and then you pay it off over time and they're tapped into your bank account. They have some algorithms that, you know, tell you how much you're eligible for and all of that. Um, You also have tax credits. And this is not something that a lot of companies think about, but it's something that um, I, you know, have used myself uh, living in Puerto Rico. There are other places like Australia that, provide tax incentives, typically in the form of income tax credits uh, that you can then sell for cash. Um, And that's just for doing research and development. Um, And then you have government loans like SBA loans, and you also have asset-backed lending. Um, So that can either be tangible assets or intangible assets like IP financing for patents and uh, some other things. That was a mouthful. I'm sorry. There are a lot of different types of non-dilutive funding. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I, it, it is a mouthful, but I think it's really important because, you know, th- this is a world that, um, you know, I don't think is very visible, right? And, and I share the same view with you in terms of venture debt. You know, it's 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 out there, but I don't know that I've ever actually worked with or even met a company that has raised significant venture debt because either – the terms themselves are so onerous, or if they're not onerous, the company is really at a point where it's not really venture debt anymore anyway. It's more like an SBA loan or something. Um, and it's kind of like, well, you know, thanks a lot. We, you know, we could have gotten money from nine other places. Um, but, you know, not many people know about these other, these, these, these other uh, possibilities that are out there. And some companies have been very successful uh, on that model. 
Yeah, I'm actually really interested to hear um, how the for your companies that that were seeking revenue based financing, how that impacted their 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 finances. I mean, I imagine it had a really positive impact. It well, it it did have a positive impact, and I, I think what happens, I think what's happened, at least in my experience, uh, you know, the the folks that are providing revenue financing are no dummies, right? Um, and and they do you know good due diligence to make sure that that's a, a good investment, or at least an investment that is is um, at the appropriate risk level for their particular asset class. And I think there's a I think there's a validation perspective there um, that that is beneficial. And I, there's probably a little bit of selection bias too. You know, I think the companies that are successful with revenue financing. They've achieved revenue financing because they were likely to be successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a special kind of company typically that that is eligible or a good candidate for revenue based financing because they've obviously proven product market fit, which is right. a lot of the uncertainty and risk that you have in early stage financing, early stage companies. Um, and so, yeah, they're definitely a not the only. But definitely a strong candidate for success. I agree. Now, um, s- some listeners may be be hearing this and, and thinking that this these, this non dilutive financing may almost sound too good to be true. Is there a risk? Is there anybody that's taking advantage of this of of the attractiveness of non dilutive financing and doing bad things with it? Is, is there a risk of being scammed in this this space? I don't know if it's being scammed, um, probably in a lot of, and this is not just for non-dilutive fund, funding and, and raising debt. This happens all the time in, in BC. It's being misled and founders who are so focused on getting back. So regardless of if you're doing non-dilutive funding in most cases or equity financing, it is very distracting process for a founder. They are plucked from their day to day. They, you know, probably their sales pipeline is suffering and their development pipeline is suffering because they can really only focus on either fundraising or running their company. You can't do both well simultaneously. Very probably very few founders will say that they can. It's a distracting and time-consuming process and so what happens is that founders get to the finish line after doing all of this due diligence and create creating data rooms and all and all of these things maybe if they're doing non-dilutive funding and it's like a one of the well we didn't talk about this but a hybrid like a convertible note um they're just glad to be getting the money so they can get back to work and they ignore the fine print they don't seek the proper legal advice and so yeah, they're, they can be misled. They were unaware of certain covenants. They didn't know that they were signing up for a conversion into preferred shares or whatever it is. So you have to be really, really careful. So the, the, the takeaway here is that the wrong venture debt um, can definitely kill a company if they're unable to pay the principal. And what you really need to understand is your worst case scenario when you're signing a document. If I'm unable to pay this back, what happens to my company? And you should be asking yourself that whether you're raising, you know, non-dilutive financing or or equity. It doesn't matter. You should always know what happens in the worst case scenario. Um, and so, yeah, it, I don't want to say it's too good to be true or that people are trying to scam you as an entrepreneur, but they definitely have their own best interests in mind. Um, that said. We're seeing a lot of innovation, like the revenue-based financing companies, the factoring companies that have very standard product and very standard terms, which I love, Um, kind of like what Safe Agreement did for raising equity as an early stage founder. We're just finding these standard terms. And and that's great because then you know what you're getting um, and everyone's getting the same thing. Um, But yeah. Legal advice is so, worth it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one of the takeaways there probably is that, you know, it's important to have an attorney look this over for you uh, if you're not really comfortable reading agreements, especially because, 
you know, some of these platforms, particularly in the revenue-based financing area, do this thing entirely online, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I didn't go through one of the processes, but I suspect that if, if they are run entirely online and it's basically a bot that's going to approve your loan or not, right? You start off by asking, by answering some questions. And the next thing you know, you're offered a loan and you're given just a, hey, click to accept. <laughs> and, and next thing you know, right, <clears throat> you've, you've got some things you didn't realize you were agreeing to. And and having a lawyer ride shotgun <laughs> at that can be really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even in the standard products, I agree. It's it's really important to understand what you're signing and what you're getting into. And you should always, as an entrepreneur, I assume that's the audience, um, you should always plan for worst case. And so your worst case in non-dilutive funding is I'm not paying you back or I'm not paying the interest during the loan term or I can't pay the principal or a combination of both. What happens? Do they have security over the entire company? Can they shut down your company and sue you for the assets? Like you, you have to understand what you're signing. So, in venture debt, um, it's it's possible, but in the more innovative asset-backed loans and um, revenue-based financing, factoring, tax credits, typically no. Typically, it's um, it there. I I find them more found, founder friendly. I'm a big supporter of. Uh, founder-friendly terms. So, well, let's say somebody listening is interested, and I'm sure somebody will be. They're going to be. They're going to want to find out on their own where they might be able to obtain this non-dilutive funding. Sounds great. What's the best way to go about identifying those sources? Is it as simple as a Google search, or are there <laughs> databases? Are there trade associations, conferences? What, what's the best way to go find these sources? And I really wish that there was, this is something that people ask all the time. They're like, well, how do you find out about all of these different resources? I wish there was a better collective um, resource for this in general. You know, it's so funny when, when you're starting a company, there's a ton of, you know, information you can find online about how to raise VC, how to create a pitch deck, um, you know, how to run all of these metrics of turn and customer acquisition costs and, you pretty much get, give yourself a degree online on how to start a company. It never, like, one of the things that it never touches non-dilutive funding sources. Um, and so I wish there was a better collective for this. But for the most part, I think that you can actually just Google um, some some resource. And maybe, all right, maybe later we'll start a website that just gives out resources. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. But, um, yeah, you can Google. Like, you can look for, for example, you can Google, you know, crowdfunding and you'll probably find like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. You can look up, you know, government loans or like SBA. You can go through SBA. It has a ton of loans. Um, grants, we're not going to talk about grants, but there are a bunch of resources for how to find SBIR and NHS grants online. Um, for revenue-based financing, you would Google like like, you know, revenue-based financing for SaaS companies or for service companies or whatever you're doing. Um, and you'll find, yeah, like Founders Factory, Pipe, Uncapped, those companies. Um, for for the tax credits, I think that this is, you know, really regional. Um, so I'm, I know really well the, the tax incentives, the R&D incentives in Puerto Rico. Uh, familiar a bit because of a project um, about the ones in Australia, but I think that this is really regional. So depending on where you live, maybe like look up, you know, research and development tax credits in wherever you are. Uh, and right. there or ask your CPA. Programs. Or ask, so that's another thing that you're bringing up a really good point, Mike, asking your CPA or your CFO, a lot of early stage founders don't have this resource. Yeah which is part of this problem because part of their job is to find this type of financing. And it's one of the like last things that founders hire. I mean, you must know this. Oh yeah. Yeah. For, in fact, <laughs> one of the first shows we ever did was should I hire a CFO? Right. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, the answer is yes, as soon as you can. Uh, but a lot of people don't because it's, it, you know, initially it is a cost center, right? A CFO is not a profit center. So that, that, that's very hard. But it's it's exactly questions like this that a good CFO can not only help you answer but navigate kind of what is the best, what's the best model, what's the best provider. 
Um, Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the other areas, one of the other characteristics that differentiate non-dilutive financing from equity, venture capital in particular, is it seems to me that a lot of non-dilutive financing is almost anonymous, right? I see so many online providers where you may never necessarily meet one another. We're going to get into the process in in a, a little bit. Whereas with equity financing, the game, you know, there, there's no, there's no, you don't just walk into a venture capitalist office, say, hey, can I have some funding, right? It's all about, you got to know somebody, you got to get introduced by one of their investee companies or their investors or something. And and that, that in itself is very much a barrier to entry for people that are raising capital, right? If you're not a very good networker, that makes it really tough. But it, for non-dilutive financing, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah. Depending on the type of non-dilutive funding, it is. Um, there are some really innovative companies that have like put this new spin on revenue financing and factoring and asset-backed lending, where you don't even need to talk to anybody on the phone. Yeah. Um, you you know connect your bank account and some metrics about your business model, and they spit out a you know a loan amount. And I think it's great because it's, you know, it's, it's leveling the playing field for founders that are outside of these circles that are outside of these geographies. Um, and so it doesn't require you to be on, you know, in this insulated in inner circle of VCs in what used to be just like Silicon Valley or New York or wherever. Now it's ex- expanding a bit post COVID. Um, but, but that's wonderful. Um, and, I think knowing, and this is where this goes back to having the CFO, um, knowing the best type of financing for whatever you've built is really important um, because there's a better fit of non-dilutive funding for each type of company. Um, but yeah, you would basically plug in your, you know, the metrics that they're asking for. Due diligence is probably not nearly as bad as it is uh, in venture capital and get a loan. And some, some of these companies are doing loans in like a day, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and that part I think also makes it attractive, right? Cause the other, one of the other pieces that makes venture capital unattractive is best case scenario. It's a months long process, right? And, you know, for a startup months <laughs> is a lot of time. Um, oh yeah. Companies live and die in, in a few months. Right. But yeah, I was noticing this, that, you know, the, it, it, it's almost like, some of these uh, non-dilutive uh, loan sources almost operate like online mortgage companies, right? Or car lending mm-hmm. companies. You put in some information and, you know, semi-instant approval. It's remarkable. Yeah. And there's, there will be more of this as well. Uh, we, yeah. I think we are just in the beginning. You shared an exciting number at the beginning of this podcast and it's a growing market. Uh, it's going to, I don't want to say it's going to take over portions of VC because there's just like never enough funding. You can never have enough funding. Um, right. So just more, more companies will have capital available to them based on what they've built. Yeah. So we, we've made a pretty good case that non-dilutive funding is pretty attractive. It's pretty awesome. Um, are there, you know, what is the role for venture capital going forward, right? I'm, I'm not sure that Mark Cuban and Peter Thiel are going to be put out of business anytime soon. Um, when, when, when might somebody, you know, kind of pump the brakes and going after non-dilutive funding and instead start seeking equity capital in, in spite of the shortcomings we've di- that we've discussed? Um, when might a more traditional route actually be appropriate? So my one-line summary for this is they should always, I want to say they, I believe they need to coexist that equity funding and non-dilutive funding should coexist. There is a time and a place for both of them. And in some cases there is a time and a place for them to coexist on the same round or at the same time. So even though I've had, you know, my share of bad experiences with equity funding and boards and venture debt, personally, I believe that taking on equity partners or equity investors, (coughs) pardon me, 
is really important when you're making strategic moves in your industry. This is like, you know, when you've found product market fit, at least a bit of it, you know, you can repeat the customer a dozen times and they're paying a similar price for it. Um, and, or you're ready for an alignment for scale or go public strategy or exit. Now, the caveat to that is that there are so many empty promises that are made by VCs. Some VCs have like hundreds of companies in their portfolio and not nearly enough time or effort to, um, to support all of these companies the way that they need to be supported through their pivots and changes and, you know, change management and all the things that happen in early stage companies. Um, and so one advice that I often give to founders is that the majority of VC money is just money and look at it that way and don't trust the promises. But I always encourage founders to do diligence, their investors, the same way that the investors are doing diligence on them. I agree and with one that. Of, one of my favorite ways to do that is to talk to their portfolio companies, but not the references that the VC gives you. Because if you ask an investor for references in their network, they're going to cherry pick references. I'm talking about going into Crunchbase, finding out the you know companies that may have died uh, or gone out of business and interviewing those founders and understanding what the relationship was like and you know where there were weaknesses or blind spots within the or within the VC firm. Um, if so, it's really, and I think I already said this, it's like getting married, you know, you are bringing somebody into your company. And if you're at like a seed stage or a series, series A stage, likely you're giving them board seats, you're giving them power in your company. Um, it was less common probably in the last like year or so, but you know, we're, where VCs were just handing out a bunch of checks uh, with all the free money that was falling, but they're take they take board seats, and so you have to work with them. You're going to have to understand how they envision your company, and you have to understand how you'll work together, just as much as you do with your co-founders or your top executives. Um, and so, yeah, there are there are pros and cons to both. And I think that most successful companies will dabble in both types of financing because it can it can be done really eloquently when done correctly. Um, that's like the long and short of it. Okay. I I, <laughs> I have some so, other thoughts on like how market conditions affect it and valuations play a role and the times that venture debt can be riskier. Um, but yeah, the the main takeaways are that. They really should coexist. And as we see a rise in more standardized, non-dilutive funding companies, um, we're going to see the two, you know, marry in a lot more of the companies that hit, you know, those series A, series B and uh, scale metrics. So this is actually a nice segue into the next question I wanted to ask, which is, um, when we think of traditional non-dilutive funding, i.e. loans, right, the, the, the agreement will typically have something that are some things that are called covenants, which is just another word for agreement, uh, obviously. But there are restrictive <laughs> covenants that restrict what the borrower is allowed to do and, and in some cases may impose penalties if the company fails to meet certain performance targets. Um, do those kinds of... Do those kinds of things, do covenants like that work their way into non-dilutive funding as well? Into certain types of non-dilutive funding, absolutely. Um, For example, traditional venture debt uh, will carry usually um, financial and performance covenants. And these are requirements that are part of the loan agreement. Um, Yeah, if you violate, it depends. and, And this is another one of my many issues with venture debt. If you violate one, you may be, you know, you may be defaulting. Uh, You may be in breach of contract. And so they may be able to go after assets or after the company um, without you even realizing that you've done anything wrong. Um, 
it's not specific to debt. It happens in equity too. But yeah, so you have um, covenants. You also have right of first refusal, which can prevent you from taking other types of debt um, or other lenders. So you have to be careful. And this is going to go back to one of our first points, which was have a lawyer. Uh, because you have to make sure that your lenders can coexist. Um, you need to make sure that your debt and your equity uh, can coexist, meaning that your debt does not violate terms of your equity agreements and your equity agreements do not violate terms of your debt. For example, some debt uh, will be above even preferred equity. And so if you have investors that are you know, earlier investors that had preferred shares, which I also advise against, um, then am I allowed to give advice? That's my own advice, Please. personal advice. <laughs> personal advice, don't give preferred shares. Um, but yeah, so, so then you would need sometimes uh, subordination signatures and all of these complicated things that I don't do that lawyers do. Um, and so, yeah, you need to understand what you're, what you're reading or what you're signing. Um, and some of the documents can be really long, specifically in venture debt. You, you can have secured debt. That's like a general general obligation of the company. It could also be specifically asset backed. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's not innocent. Um, you know, specifically venture debt, it's, it's not innocent. Um, typically, it is secured in some form or fashion. It's not just free money. Um, if you want just, you know, free money for doing research and development, I'll uh, segue into your podcast about grants. Right. So, <laughs> so um, you know, th those terms obviously can, can be very complicated, can be certainly be very impactful. In your experience, are, are non-dilutive capital providers open to negotiation? Is it worth trying to negotiate with them or do they typically just issue a term sheet, take it or leave it? Uh, everything in life is negotiable. <laughs> okay. You can negotiate anything in life. Yeah. So, Okay. In the standard products, so Pipe is actually a really good example of this. They're a marketplace. They, they take bids for um, contracts. And so essentially, um, those terms are, are set, right? They are standard terms. They've been evaluated by some models. There hasn't been a back and forth. There hasn't been an in-person meeting or a phone call. They're just terms that are given and people can bid on those terms. And you'll take like the best terms that are, you know, available, right? And I really love these standardized products because, again, it levels the playing field. You can't really hide much under it. Everyone's getting the same deal. And you know what you're getting into as a founder, which, you know, you should be able to safely feel like you know what you're getting into as a founder. Um, however... When you're doing, you know, convertible debt or you're doing venture debt or just like a general note on the company in any form or fashion, um, yeah, usually you can just negotiate them. Uh, they're not, I mean, I, I don't think that any, I don't think there's ever a time where you shouldn't negotiate. Okay. So, are, yeah. are there certain Are there certain kinds of companies or models that tend to be a better fit for non-dilutive funding than others? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'll just say that for mature companies that have clear product market fit, um, they're able to raise equity with strategic um, investors from strategic from, you know, big firms. They're on like the path to IPO or exit or whatever it is. Equity is definitely a front runner. I don't think that they shouldn't supplement with financing, taking advantage of financing the other assets they've built. Like if they built a strong uh, annual recurring revenue, like why not take financing to grow with that, with that asset? Or if they have created a portfolio of IP assets, why not borrow against those IP assets um, if you can for a reasonable amount of money? And and those types of financings are, are typically reasonable. They have very reasonable loan terms. Um, so the companies that are typically attracted to like, I don't know, tax incentives, uh, grants or asset-backed loans, specifically intangible asset-backed, 
are typically companies that have taken a like heavy technical risk. So they've spent like a lot of money developing the the infrastructure, the architecture, the product. Uh, those are like your deep tech companies, and a lot less on on sales and marketing efforts. And so you know they're they they won't be able to uh, to to get revenue based financing. And in some cases, it's very difficult for them to raise VC on favorable terms because investors just simply don't value those intangible assets the way that, I don't want to say the way that they should, but yeah, really the way that they should. Um, intangible assets are an asset that should be on our financial statements. They should be on our balance sheets and they're just not. Um, oh, and so, oh, that'd be a three hour rant for me. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> oh boy. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a rabbit hole there. Um, but that's one of the the big blind areas, in my opinion, of of venture capital is that they have absolutely no idea how to value intangible assets properly, specifically for the SME market. Yeah, um, and the accounting world in general. And the accounting, the yeah, we're all running practic- off of gap. <laughs> it all behaves as if intangible assets don't exist, right? I mean, oh, okay, I need I need to center myself because otherwise yeah. it'll be a three-hour off-ramp into intangible asset valuation and gap and yeah no we don't, we're just not going to do that <laughs> okay so we're not we're not going to go down that rabbit hole i would jump down the hole with you mike um maybe we'll crack open a bottle of port and have a, a yeah. virtual a virtual session to commiserate yeah. but yeah so so definitely companies that have taken heavy technical risks deep tech companies research companies should ab- absolutely optimize what they've built with grants and tax incentives or um, intangible asset-backed loans. Um, companies that have focused more on sales and marketing that have some strong early traction should be looking at revenue-based financing um, or factoring, depending on on what they're selling and how they're selling it. it it's, you know, why not? And, and allow that to fund your build-out. Um, of your product or you know whatever your version to companies that are direct to consumer d2c companies that have tangible products you know so many founders i've talked to that are building tangible products and i don't do tangible things i'm like i live in the intangible space uh data systems you know cloud infrastructure code but yep. founders that build tangible products they like almost never consider crowdfunding i'm like why if you have like all these people asking to buy your product or have purchased prototypes do crowdfunding effort like that is the perfect non-dilutive financing and you have like revenue built in to your funding um and so yeah customer validation absolutely the ultimate and you don't even have to take risk because unless you hit a certain metric or sell a certain number, you're not going to build it, and you don't have to, you know, pay the factories or the su- the suppliers. Um, and so, yeah, it it so there are definitely better types of of financing. Maybe I should maybe I should write like a a post on this, a blog post. I have lots to say. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> you know, crowd, crowdfunding reminds me. Have you ever watched the movie The Producers? Possibly. It's Maybe. it's a it's a it's a Mel Brooks movie. It was ev- eventually remade, but it, but basically the the story goes. It, it, it's about a couple of playwrights that realize that recognize that failed plays actually enrich the playwrights more than successful plays. Right? If it if it you raise a bunch of money, it bombs night one. You shut it down, and then you actually pocket the rest of the money. Right? Mm. Um, whereas if it's successful, you may not. And, and so the producers deliberately set out, these two guys deliberately set out to make a play that would fail, raise a bunch of money for it, sabotage the play, and then pocket the proceeds. The problem was, and they thought they had this, this, this winning theme, they called it Springtime for Hitler, right? It was a musical about Adolf Hitler, basically, in Brooklyn. And the problem is, is that it was so bad, it was hilarious, and it was a smash hit, and it basically ruined the two guys that had raised the money. That's funny. And it just occurred to, to me that whole, that whole story was just Mel Brooks talking about crowdfunding in the <laughs> 1970s. Love it. Yeah, there you go. So it's not a new concept. <laughs> That's, so well, don't your, do that. 
to any. Yeah, don't any do that. We're not. We're not advocating that. fraud. At the end of the day, <laughs> I should point out that was fraud. So. Yes. Um, and also don't make and also don't make material about Hitler. Only Mel Brooks can get away with making Hitler funny. Yeah, they, Nobody else can do that. So. No. <laughs> not not a not a place we recommend that you go. Um, <laughs> I'm talking with Lauren Casky on the topic is should I pursue non-dilutive uh, financing? Um, yeah, I'm curious because yeah, and you have a unique or certainly a very uh, uh, an unusually informed perspective on this because you've been with companies that have raised capital. You're now a capital provider yourself. Is non-dilutive financing starting to disrupt conventional venture capital? This is such a tough question um, because I think that they've coexisted for a long time, for as long as I've been in the game, at least. Um, and I don't, I, I believe, I firmly believe there's a shortage of capital. I, that there is a, a higher demand and there always will be a higher demand for capital and there is a true funding gap, not only in the U.S., but in global markets. And we will never have enough funding. I believe that non-dilutive funding outside of traditional venture debt, but the other types that we talked about, are going to be a key mechanism in the ability for companies to capitalize on the things that they've built and fund their companies to success. And that doesn't mean that it's going to take away from the VC market. There's still a time and a place for VC. We're seeing a ton of, you know, VC funds that are very small emerging from emerging managers, new managers. People have never run VC funds before. A lot of them ex-founders or left their own firms uh, to, to, to build impact firms. Um, and so I think that that will continue, that trend will continue where you have a lot of emerging managers beginning to fund companies that are seeking to make impact. But I, I think that non-dilutive funding is just going to slightly close the funding gap uh, that we have. And as on, you know, as entrepreneurship and, um, and, you know, building companies becomes more status quo for people um, that we've seen, you know, seen in post-COVID, people creating their own businesses, leaving the corporate world. Um, there'll always just be a, a demand for capital uh, and we're not ever going to be able to fill it. So before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you a patently unfair question. But uh, I only ask patently unfair questions of my very best, very smartest guests because I know you can handle the curveball. And, and that is that um, it seems to me that non-dilutive funding might also be a path to closing the gender and race bias in early stage financing because it's not so personalized, right? It's not about being yeah. part of the same club, the same alumni association, the same country club. But the, 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 as we talked about earlier, the sources of finan financing may not even know who you are. Yeah. Right. And there's no basis for the bias. Do, do you, does that resonate at all? Or am I just grasping at straws yeah. here? No, a hundred percent. I'll make one reference to Gulp Data. In our survey, we ask a question um, about being minority owned or being women owned. Um, and that is because I am, I want to compare funding metrics with the SBA's um, fund, you know, uh, funding report that they did, I think it was in yep. 20, in 2020, there's huge gap, not only in minority and gender, but in geography. And I think that non-dilutive funding is, I mean, it, you know, one of the questions you asked me was like this, you know, this decision-making process is essentially blind. It is because it's merit-based. Does the company fit the profile we're looking for? Does it fit the risk profile that we're looking for? And if it does, it gets funded. And if it doesn't, it does not. It doesn't matter who you know. It doesn't matter what school you went to, where you live, you know, what, what gender you are, what race you are, you get funded. And it's a beautiful, I, I mean, I wish that 
that more funding operated like this, including um, government loans and grants. Like this is information that they also know typically uh, yeah. when you're applying for funding. And I don't think it should be relevant. It's just not a relevant input metric to determine risk. Yeah. And, and yeah. in fact, that in part is why I sort of carved out grants into a separate topic because um, a lot of the automation, a lot of sort of the distance between a funding applicant and funding provider that exists in a lot of these revenue-based financing solutions does not exist in a lot of the grant world. The grant world, in my view, actually uh, resembles much more closely venture capital, right, in terms of the relationship building and so forth. That's why I did carve it out. Um, Lauren, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I know it's an hour later for you there than it is for us, although knowing you, you'll probably work another 10 hours. But um, uh, if if there are probably questions that we haven't covered uh, or maybe a listener would have wished we'd spent more time on. If somebody wants to contact you to follow up about this, I mean, you're so knowledgeable about the topic, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Oh yeah. Um, so absolutely. And I'm always like happy to help founders navigate uh, uh, fundraising or, you know, whatever they're facing. I've been there, done that, doing it again. Um, so L, the short one I think is LC, like, Lauren Cassio, LC at gulpdata.com. That's like an easy one. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I like notes though. If you connect with me, add a note. So I know why you're connecting with me. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank Lauren Cassio so much for sharing her expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also check out my new LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.